The Water Values Podcast, Session 47. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. I hope everyone's doing great. Really appreciate all the new listeners. We had a huge spike in downloads last week across the entire catalog of the Water Values Podcast. That means you're spreading the word, and I'm very grateful to you for that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Today's show is fantastic. Jeff Hughes of the Environmental Finance Center of the University of North Carolina joins us to discuss a broad range of rate and rate design issues in the water wastewater sector. He's got some great examples of creative rates and rate designs that are being deployed or considered to be deployed across the United States. I found our conversation absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Uh, to start off, could you please tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure, I, I'd love to. Um, most of my career I've worked with or for local government uh, agencies, um, some water utilities, but also some other environmental service providers. Um, I was a, a small county public works director for a while and had a water utility under my purview, as well as things like solid waste and um, other aspects of environmental services. Um, so I've just always been intrigued by how how government agencies provide those services. I've um, worked some as a consultant, um, and then obviously for, uh, currently work in the academic arena, but still focus on that on that area. Sure, and could you tell us what kind of you're doing in the that academic arena? Sure, and I say academic arena, um, but it, it actually is a very applied academic arena. I work at a place called the um, University of North Carolina School of Government, which is really cooperative extension for public officials. Um, we do what academics do. We do research and teaching and uh, advising. It's just I work primarily with students that are public officials rather than academic students. I, I do have um, quite a few masters and PhD students that work with me on research projects and um, I occasionally teach courses in our public administration department. But most of what I do is um, probably more similar to a consulting uh, firm. Uh, we, we are on call to answer questions that people have um, related to uh, what's legal in, in the environmental finance world, um, what, uh, what are best practices, a lot of our research involves documenting best practices. So we, we do a number of um, statewide um, pricing studies where somebody will call us and we produce tools that will show um, what are standards in a particular state. Um, so, so that's really, uh, you know, that's really the, the academic world I sit in. I, if you're familiar with the academic world, that uh, focuses on things like peer-reviewed papers and um, and just research seminars and that sort of thing. That's not me. That's not what I do. <laughs> okay, now you use the term environmental finance. Uh, could you describe what environmental finance is? 
Uh, sure. It's a, it's a hard thing to uh, explain, particularly to my family members uh, <laughs> when, I, when I'm trying to explain what I, what I, I do. But no, I, I think seriously, there's, there's a number of definitions. Um, particularly, we were talking in the academic world. I think environmental finance in the academic world can really be synonymous with environmental economics and can include a lot of non-monetary analysis where uh, you might be trying to figure out the societal benefits um, of a particular environmental service. There's things called ecosystem services out there that a, a lot of people who say they're environmental finance professionals focus on these days, and they're trying to kind of figure out economic value of, of, of different aspects of environmental protection. That's not how we define environmental finance for my center. Um, I, I work at the Environmental Finance Center. It's really, for us, the environmental how do you pay for it center. We are very cash and finance focused, and that's how we define environmental finance. Um, we focus on tracking the flow of funds directly linked to providing an environmental service. And that's, again, that's water service, but it's also land conservation. It um, could be recycling. Uh, could be any, any kind of environmental objective that you think of. We track and figure out systems for taking the money from the ultimate beneficiary all the way through to potentially the contractor that the service provider might hire to actually build something. Um, so we we look at a lot of uh, fees uh, fee systems. We do a lot of pricing work. We also look at a lot of debt um, debt models. So we look at alternative um, capital finance options. Um, a lot of our work, uh, while it's finance oriented, it has a blend of legal and governance on top. Um, probably even more so than economics. So we're very concerned about what you can legally do in a particular setting, not just what maybe um, you ideally could do from an economic standpoint, if that, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Now, uh, so when your, you know, quote unquote clients are coming to you, these, these governmental entities that are trying to figure out ways to pay for uh, a certain project, what are kind of some of the issues you're seeing that they're, they're bringing to you? Well, I think it's the issues that everybody in the field comes across. Um, first off, they, they want to have sufficient funds for their service so that there's a lot of environmental service providers, water waste, water utilities that are looking at very high price tags. And their main concern is how can we find the, um, the one million, the five million, the hundred million dollars um, that they need. So just finding the money is a big issue, but then it gets a little bit more complicated uh, for many when they're trying to figure out how can they find the money when a segment of their service population has different financial challenges than a different segment. And, and that usually is synonymous with affordability problems. So we do a lot of work trying to figure out pricing systems and finance systems that take into consideration that um, you know, we have a country that has some wealthy families and some poor families. So that's, you know, that's, that's one thing that we look at. Um, we, we also, we are, we are focused on some economic issues and we know that how you generate money 
to pay for things does influence people's behavior. So there's a behavioral side of what we do that comes up in a lot of our work. Um, we may come up with a way of paying for something that satisfies one criteria. It might generate lots of revenue in a stable way, but it may send a, a signal that the, the service provider doesn't necessarily want to send, you know, particularly in water where we might have someone trying to send a, send a conservation uh, message. You, you might come up with a with a payment structure that is great at generating money, but maybe not great at generating a, a water efficiency or conservation signal. So th those are the aspects we deal with. I mentioned we also deal with, is it legal? Um, there's a lot of great ideas that people are chewing on for creative environmental finance that may be legal in one state, don't necessarily work in another state. So we pride ourselves on really being very uh, pragmatic in our work and we take lots of great ideas and have to adapt them to make them work just for practical and legal okay. methods. Uh, so, so let's start off with kind of the, the traditional rate design. What, what do you view as the state of you know, traditional rate design? Well, I think when you're talking about water, wastewater, and that's really what I think we're going to focus mostly on, um, traditional rate design, I think, is dominated by, uh, ever since we got into metering water, has been dominated with volume-based um, pricing. And that's, um, in most cases, it's volume-based pricing for both water and wastewater utilities. Wastewater uh, revenue is, is, is typically linked to the amount of water sold. Sometimes there's formulas that reduce it. or, But it's, it's really, at the end of the day, volume-based. I, I would say anywhere from uh, traditional, uh, across the board, 70 to 90% of a of a revenue that a water utility in this country collects, you can link to um, the amount of water that passes through a meter. That's the traditional rate design, I think, in the in the big sense. Okay, and so as as you're looking for creative approaches to to move away from that you know traditional rate design, that um, so some of these creative approaches could uh, send the right signals, so to speak. So what, what, what do you see as the opportunities there to move away from the, from traditional rate design? Well, I, I think, you know, it's not rocket science in the sense that, um, what we're really looking at is to, is to make the revenue less variable and more fixed. Um, the, the cost structure for these utilities is exactly opposite their pricing structure. By that I mean, if you look at uh, look at the costs of most utilities, seventy to eighty percent of their costs are fixed. They don't change uh, regardless of how much water they sell on the short and medium term. So our, our a lot of our uh, alternative rates are just to look at how can we produce a uh, on an annual basis or on a monthly basis a revenue stream that is more predictable and more fixed for a particular utility the the creativity comes with can we do that in a way that still sends some type of pricing signal you know we're not trying to come up with the, the gym membership pricing structure for water utilities you know gyms no, no, nobody really pays variable prices for their gym memberships. They collect 
50 bucks a month from everyone, whether they use it once or, or 30 times. Um, so, you know, one, one alternative rate design could be that we just tell utilities, just charge everybody 50 bucks and go home for the day. But that's not what we're doing because then people lose sight of any connection between the, their water use and the payment structure. So all, our, all of our, our rate designs have some pricing signal built in. They just produce more reliable revenue streams. Okay. And uh, so when, when you're looking at these alternative rate designs and things of that nature, what, what's the framework? What, what do the utilities you're, you're consulting for, what are they, uh, you know, what are some of the goals that they're trying to implement in terms of using alternative rate designs? Well, uh, many of them, many of them are very concerned about pricing signal, particularly, you know, we've done some work in Texas and California and in, in the southeast where we're based. Um, uh, we had the drought of record in 2008. Nobody wanted to just send their customers a message that it didn't matter how much you used, you'd pay the same. So I, uh, everybody wanted to have some connection with how much you use influences how much you pay. So that's the starting point for many utilities. Um, I mean, frankly, there are a few utilities that don't care so much about that. There are some utilities that have so much excess capacity, um, they, they would be happy having that $50 flat charge for all their customers. Um, but, we, but we are doing most of the work for those utilities that tell us, um, can we make a compelling case to our customers that they should be conscious of their water use. So the way we've done that is that we look at, can we use consumption as a factor for impacting the amount that someone pays, but not necessarily on a month-to-month -month or day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, that, you know, that's, that's where most of our alternative rate designs have fallen. Um, you know, and we have a couple designs that meet that criteria. Um, I think, I think the one that we've been the most uh, interested in and has gotten some of the most positive, uh, positive feedback from the utilities we work with is something that we, we refer to as peak set base, where what we're doing is using historic uh, consumption for a particular utility going back two to three years and looking at each individual customer as an individual um, cost driver on the system. And what we know for water systems is that customers that use a lot of water for short periods of time tend to drive a lot of a utility costs over the long term. So what we've done is have a formula for at the beginning of the year, we will allocate a base charge to every customer uh, in a particular utility service area, and they will pay that same base charge all year long. The creativity is that everybody gets their own separate base charge based on their historic peak. So if someone's been using tons of water in the summer, they're gonna pay uh, a pretty stable amount for water all year, but it's gonna be quite high. Um, somebody that has used very little water in the summer relative to the winter, and they're really an ideal customer from a utility cost standpoint. Um, you know, they don't have that messy peaking. They're gonna be rewarded with a pretty low base charge. 
Um, so at the end of the day, a utility may collect, uh, and, and we have lots of variations of these that we've been testing, but you could design it so a utility could, at the beginning of their year, know that they are going to collect 70% or 80% of their revenue if everybody went on vacation for the entire year. They're still going to collect that 70 or 80% of their revenue in fixed base charges. But each individual customer knows that their behavior is going to influence their future base charges. So you do have some tension, you know, when somebody's turning on the tap, particularly in the summer, but you don't have the month-to-month -month spikes that we see with just a pure variable uh, base pricing. And uh, that's the one that we've tested for about 15 utilities. Nobody's actually implemented that, that we've found so far. Davis, California came pretty close in a, in a rate structure that they've referred to as a consumption-based fixed charge. We didn't work directly with them, but we our system that we've been promoting is very similar to what they promoted. Um, and it was very controversial, but it was essentially that same that same structure. What, what drove the controversy in that situation? The, the, the thing that drives so much controversy in anything related to environmental finance is that it's that inertia. Whenever you change something, it's the devil that you know is better than the devil you don't. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, we can show these systems, and this is what we do for our analysis, is that we will show that for 80% of your customers, there's going to be very little change. It may be a positive change. Um, but you can't do much creative without having some winners and some losers. And in Davis, uh, the losers of that system um, were not particularly happy. And the losers under the Davis uh, analytics were going to be people that, um, as you can imagine, did a lot of uh, irrigating in the summer. And you, if you go Google Davis uh, uh, pricing, you'll see they generated uh, the, the so-called losers from this uh, scenario. They didn't refer to themselves as losers, but but they, <laughs> they, they generated this, this ground root um, uh, uprising, and they had their own uh, they had their own advocacy organization. They were fighting, you know, on a platform of fairness. They were, you know, saying that they were going to be uh, prejudiced. You know, there was going to be prejudice against their water use. Um, so, I, I mean, that that's the campaign. Now, there's a lot of other complications, and California water pricing is just so fascinating. There's some constitutional issues that they were looking at, but at the end of the day, it's it's, I, I think, a fairly vocal uh, minority really got angry that they were going to end up paying more. Um, and, you know, that's, I, you know, I think that's what did it. Um, in the utilities that we've worked with, um, it's interesting. There has been some concern for that vocal minority. But when we've done our analysis and showed that just how many people are going to be at the end of the year, held fairly constant in what they pay, um, then their concern moves away from that fairness. And the first thing that comes up to when everybody's talking about this alternative rate structure or some of the other ones we're looking at is, can our poor billing software handle it? Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. That always comes up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's a couple things in there. I think, number one, you're right when the quote-unquote losers are the ones who are going to be who are have deep pockets, then you're more likely to have opposition. Um, so I think that's a that's a big thing. The other, I mean, you just mentioned it at the tail end there, data. Um, 
in the utilities I've been involved with, uh, getting good data seems to be quite an issue at times. Um, and so I'm just curious what kind of, of uh, data issues there are for these utilities that are, that are looking at alternative rate designs. I mean, are, do they need, if they, how much planning needs to go in, right? If they, if they want to implement an alternative rate design, do they need to kind of get two years worth of data and kind of get their, their house in order before they really even dig into this? Or, you know, what, what's the data issues or what are the data issues? Uh, well, I think, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, certainly we would, we would, uh, tell any, well, anybody to not go into something as important as, as the revenue you're going to get and your kind of fundamental customer communication mechanism, which is what I think pricing is. We tell folks to, 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 to look very carefully at their, their data. Um, you don't necessarily need two years of data. That, that one system that we did, um, you know, we were going back for two years, but there are some other uh, approaches that you could have a little bit less data needs, but I don't want to downplay the data concerns at all. It is something that, um, particularly for a small utility, um, is you know is, it can be a challenge for this, for this type of alternative rate. At the same time, you know, uh, everybody's talking about big data. Everybody's talking about smart meters. I have to say it gets me a little frustrated when I see this type of investments going on in smart meters for some utilities. And, and we're not necessarily seeing smart pricing that's following along the smart meters. I mean, the whole point of a lot of these meters is to provide better data. And I think, you know, I think some of the utilities that we've been working with um, are getting there. I mean, they're having uh, data sets now that they didn't have three or four years ago. Um, so, I, you know, I think as we move forward, I think there will be some utilities that are starting to realize, wow, we have all this data. Now we can start doing this type of uh, more advanced pricing. Um, so, you know, it, it is something that we're tracking the billing software is a is a it's a related data issue, but it's it's it can be its own challenge just because some um, some water utilities have these legacy billing software systems that you know basically what we're talking about is a customized individualized billing class for every customer, and there are just some uh, rate structures that. Uh, excuse me, there are some uh, billing softwares that, that, that have a hard time with that. But again, that's another thing that we're trying to work with some billing software companies to get their, their billing platforms to be as much about management as just an accounts payable system. Um, so we're, we're getting there. Um, I will say that uh, I get, again, a little frustrated when people tell me, oh, we could never do that. That is so complicated. And then we turn around and find out, particularly in areas of the Southwest, they are already doing very creative uh, pricing on the, the wastewater side. There are large swaths of um, utilities across the Southwest that use historic water consumption to set wastewater pricing into the future. And it's a little bit complicated, but but we know that billing software can be programmed to look back and use that information for forward setting pricing. And it's it's being done today for many, many utilities. So when, when people tell me like, oh, we could never do that, I can show you a list of hundreds of utilities that have figured out how to do a basic variation of what we're talking about. Well, that's pretty interesting. Now, in terms of those utilities you mentioned in the Southwest, 
uh, are they uh, combined water wastewater utilities or you know which which ones are the ones that are being creative are they are they the ones that are kind of taking a more holistic approach or are they the the separated ones well and and i don't you know whether you say it's creative or not they're they're being more complicated in their price setting um in the southwest particularly if you look at a place like texas there is so much peaking in the summer you you have water customers that combine water and sewer customers where they may use um they may use 30,000 gallons a month in July and 8,000 gallons a month in December. And I think that it's it's part of a rebellion on customers that were were getting frustrated that they were paying for 30,000 gallons of wastewater service in the summer when they could when they showed come on guys there's no way we use 30,000 gallons of wastewater service in the summer, all of that extra water is just going to water our yards. So what what utilities have had to do in places like Texas where they are concerned about, um, you know, you could say they're concerned about a fairness issue with wastewater pricing, is they've had to use winter use on the water side to displace water use in the summer for wastewater billing purposes. So they will look back into, in some cases, and they're complicated, some cases they take the three lowest months in the winter. They will they'll have their billing software calculate what that is. And then in the summer, when a customer uses 30,000 gallons, they will use the 30,000 gallons for their water pricing, but they will reach back in time and use 8,000 gallons as the wastewater price point, so it's it's really the it's very, really very similar to what we're talking about in our creative pricing. So we know that these software, some of the software, can be programmed to do that. Um, so again, I, talking about detailed pricing over a podcast is kind of challenging. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to in my work use a lot of diagrams and graphics. So uh, Dave, I honestly don't know if that's clear, but. Oh. That's the best I can do. Yeah, I, I think that I, I, I was getting it there. Um, we've talked about some of the challenges to adoption, you know, uh, opposition uh, from the losers, uh, billing software issues. Are there any other challenges to uh, adoption of these creative uh, and alternative rate designs? Well, uh, you, you know, legal legal options are a big you know are, are a big thing. Um, there are uh, there there is a philosophy that I think has driven um, rate setting in, in, in this country for, for many years, and it's the idea of cost of service. So um, the, the idea is you have to have a nexus with what someone pays over, you know, over a particular time period. And um, you can certainly think of creative alternative pricing design that do all sorts of interesting things on the policy side of the house but they may lose that cost connection. So we're always worried about that, particularly in states like California that have very strong prohibitions against just willy-nilly pricing. I mean, you really do have to have a, have a pretty strong link between costs and your price. So, um, you know, we end up doing some, some deep detailed legal analysis um, when we do these, these pricing. I, I mentioned affordability. Some of the alternative pricing structures 
the group that they may hit harder may be the lower income, and you know we're, we're very aware of that. So a lot of our analysis when we do a, an alternative pricing uh, analysis will be to kind of say, here is the impact on these different levels of uh, different types of customers. Um, the other thing we haven't mentioned is um, you know the economic development aspect of, of water Again, in, in many areas, um, water is a um, is a key part of a community's economic development uh, strategy. So, you know, we're aware that um, you know you can't have an alternative price that suddenly you know, sends the main industry in town that might already be on precarious footing. You can't do an alternative rate setting that suddenly triples their out-of-pocket water pricing, even if you have some other compelling reasons for it. It's just, in practical sense, for small-town America, that doesn't work. Sure. Uh, in terms of, like, kind of the utility regulatory commission uh, angle, have you have you been interfacing, have you been interfacing with NARUC at all on this, or...? A little, and you know, you you know, we're 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 pretty deep into the podcast, and I haven't even used the word decoupling, which, <laughs> which is, you know, which is which is really what we're talking about, what we've been talking about for the last uh, twenty minutes is decoupling, and that certainly is a big issue for Nehruk. It's a it's a big issue for utility uh, commissions and public service commissions across the the country. It, it's really what we're talking about is just kind of decoupling. Uh, uh, you know, decoupling is just a, a, a version of what we've been talking about is kind of weakening the link between usage uh, and, and revenue. And um, there are some interesting decoupling mechanisms that NARUC has been looking at and that utility commissions have been looking at that, um, that are a little different than what we're talking about. Um, I think one you could say it's an alternative rate design is that rather than doing kind of what we've talked about is there's let's see what happens over a year period or over a six month period and if water use is much lower than was predicted let's have a correction period and let's send out bills for the following year or the following month that are collecting some of the revenue that we had planned to get in the previous year. Again, this is a somewhat complicated pricing um, concept. That seems to be what uh, a fair amount of uh, investor-owned utilities have kind of been pushing their utility commissions to allow them to do. We've had some some pushback even from the utilities, the private utilities themselves, that their customers haven't reacted particularly well to that rate design. Um, getting a little memo, you know, or a little uh, kind of thing in the mail that says, um, you know, you're going to be paying a surcharge this year because of an underbilling in the last year, it it just doesn't have a good public relations uh, ring to it. So um, we haven't been talking with Nehruk with some about some of these new alternative rate structures, but I'd like to. Um, I think I just you know I I think forward-looking rate setting is just it, it it plays better with the public than this kind of retroactive recovering revenue in lump sums that that some of the investor-owned utilities have been experimenting with. Um, the other model that um, 
I think may have some uh, may have some interesting application for investor-owned utilities is what we refer to as a dividend model, where um, I don't want to say that you intentionally overcharge customers, but I will say that you are very, very conservative in your volumetric projections so that you make darn sure that in a given year, you are preparing for the worst sales year you, you might possibly have. What that does to you mathematically is at the end of the year, rather than finding yourself short, where you have to go back to your customers and recover some funds, what that does for you is you end up with a surplus. Now, the, the only way you could get by with being conservative on your projections year after year is getting some of that money back to your customers. I think there's no utility service commission or customer that's going to let you overcharge them year after year. Um, a lot of the rural electric co-ops use this model, and what they do is come December, they cut their customers a check. Um, to us, that seems like a really natural way of doing pricing is that you're very conservative and you send your customers a check in December. Um, you'd be surprised the kind of response we've gotten with this with this uh, approach. We, surprise gotten, me. Go ahead and surprise me. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, we've run, we've, we've done a lot of vetting of all these alternative uh, models. We've vetted them with finance officers at the utility level. We've worked a lot with rating agencies to, to vet these. We've done, we've looked at lenders. Um, um, the, the idea of a utility giving money back to a customer is, um, you know, to be, to be frank and be a little melodramatic, it scares the bejesus out of, out of a lot of people. They, they, they just, it's back to what we were talking about earlier in the, in the show. Um, there's big needs and people's main concern is having enough money. So if the money comes in, in, in uh, billing payments over a year period, um, even if it was planned that you only needed 10 million and you were very conservative and you collected 11 million, turning around and giving back that million dollars is just a tough sell when you know you have a capital improvement plan that has $50 million worth of needs in it. So, I mean, I understand, uh, and I was a utility director, I understand that, you know, there's always needs, but this, this approach is really as much about fairness as kind of changing the relationship between customers and their utility so that they see themselves as owners rather than just, um, you know, some sort of passive customer. Um, so we continue to kind of do analysis on that dividend model. We've done some models where rather than giving the money back to people based on how much water they used, we've had some really creative formulas where, particularly if you're in a drought area, we say, well, hey, why don't we be creative? And why don't we give money back to people in proportion to how much they conserved? You know, again, you need you need some good meter technology, but um, you could imagine where the big winners at the get, end of the year are somebody that worked hard to not peak, to reduce their month-to-month -month use, to respond to a particular call the utility might have had at a given time of year. Um, so again, you know, you can do some creative things that I think still follow a, a cost of service pricing. You know, if somebody in the middle of the year cut their price, uh, cut their use drastically, I think you could show that they 
had some cost benefits to the utility and you could reward them a little bit more. Um, so I, I, I'm, as you can tell in my voice, I, I'm particularly excited about the dividend model, but um, I, <laughs> we need to find, some, <laughs> you know, uh, Washington DC tried a version of this, certainly not the, you know, the, some of the complicated models that we're talking about, but they found themselves with a little bit of a revenue surplus in, in a given year, I think three years ago or two years ago. They cut everybody a check. It was a pretty small check, um, and there was just a lot of concern that, uh, you know, it was a lot of work to get that money back to people, and there and there wasn't necessarily a feeling that that generated, you know, a transformational relationship with customers. So, you know, it got some, frankly, it got some probably political benefits, but um, so, you know, I understand you know, the the logistical challenges of some of these and the, the message that, you know, people were just concerned about the message of giving money back when at the same time you, many utilities are just so stressed out that they don't have enough money. Yeah. You know, well, anyway, these are the things that we're looking at. Well, Jeff, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating subject. I wish we, we could talk for, a, you know, the rest of the day, I think about it, but uh, you have been very generous, generous with your time. You've already spent more time with me than, uh, than I promised you would. Uh, so I want to thank you for that. And for those folks who want to find out uh, more about you and the environmental finance center at the university of North Carolina, where can they go to find that information? Um, well, I think the best, the best source these days is, is our good old website. And that's uh, www.e fc.unc.edu. Terrific. Well, Jeff, you've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate your time again, and uh, thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Sure, Dave. Thank uh, you. you Bye-bye. Bye. That was my conversation with Jeff Hughes of the Environmental Finance Center at the University of North Carolina. He was absolutely terrific. It's great to speak with someone who's got a lot of experience around the country on rate issues, Sometimes we get so focused on what's going on in our city or state or jurisdiction that conversations like these uh, provide a good amount of perspective. So here are a couple of takeaways. First, I thought Jeff did a great job of describing the rate design process as multifaceted. You've got a strict cost-based perspective and a policy-based perspective when setting rates. You've got customer comprehension and customer economics issues. You've then got system capability issues, like, for example, your billing system, uh, as well. So it's a complicated process and one that, cons uh, that, that the utilities customers really need to understand better. Uh, my next takeaway concerns the revenue certainty that utilities crave. Jeff indicated that in a typical water utility, 70 to 90 percent of the utilities costs are fixed. It doesn't matter how much water is treated and sent out into the distribution system, those costs won't change. This is what I've found to be true in my practice, and customers need to understand this because I, can, I can't tell you how many times I've heard customers complain in a rate case that, you know, quote, I'm, I'm a family of two, and we shouldn't pay as much as a family of five. Well, that resonates if you don't understand the economics of a water utility, but it, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I, I think it's really important from a customer education perspective that utilities get that right. I really like... The, uh, the, the peak set base model that Jeff described, the model sets a baseline for water consumption and then bills customers on that baseline for the following year when the baseline is then reset. It gives customers the ability to really conserve water, and if they do so, they get rewarded in the following year with lower rates. Uh, I'd like to see this approach, which I understand may be a little data intensive, 
Uh, I'd like to see this approach combined with the dividend approach that Jeff described. Now, that to me would be very, very interesting to see how that might work. Um, my final takeaway that I'll share on the podcast concerns the obstacles to adoption of creative rate designs. You know, Jeff mentioned inertia and the, the idea that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Well, another facet of that inertia is what happened in Davis, California, when the, the you know, quote-unquote losers, customers of a proposed rate design uh, rattled their sabers and were able to short-circuit the adoption of a creative rate design. It highlights the political power issue. In Davis, it was the wealthier customers who irrigated uh, their lawns that challenged the new rate design. In essence, the wealthier customers had the greater political power and were able to to kill what sounds uh, like a creative rate design and maintain uh, a, a possible subsidy benefiting their water usage. Uh, turn it around and look at summer wastewater rate, uh, the summer wastewater rate issue that Jeff mentioned. He suggested that uh, the the lower summer wastewater rates came about because you know large summertime water users complained that that such a large percentage of their water use was for irrigation and was not going into the sewer that they should uh, essentially be billed at their winter rate for for uh, wastewater charges. Uh, because those customers had the political power as a customer that pays a lot of money to the utility, the new rate design was adopted that allowed the winter rate to be uh, collected in the summer for that wastewater usage. So how'd the, use, how'd the utility make up for that revenue loss? Well, it spread it across uh, the remaining customer customer base, of course. So it just goes to show you that there are lots of these uh, political issues within utility rates. Um, and it just goes to show you that for creative rate designs to be adopted, we're going to need to bring together political will, and I emphasize that aspect of it, cost of service, policy, customer comprehension, customer economics, and billing system capacity issues. These are all very important issues that we need to to really understand when we're looking at rate designs. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 47. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast, which it, it sounds like you're, you're doing given the spike of, of last week. Um, and don't forget to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. 
I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.